Let's get after it. I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for the grace of getting to gather together. I I pray that you would bless my friends this morning and give um, them ears to hear, and you would help me serve them and give me the words to say to rightly lift you up, Jesus. We want to see you glorified. We pray this in your name, God's people said together. I've always been fascinated with Easter Island. It's just a weird place, right? And so I just happened to dig in this week just because I was bored and, and began to read a little bit more about it. And anthropologists, I didn't know this, but anthropologists, scientists believe that this is actually the last kind of chunk of real estate in all of the world that was inhabited by humans. As humans spread throughout the globe, the final place that, that we arrived as a race and inhabited and made our home was Easter Island about 800 years ago, anthropologists believe. So a Polynesian tribe, they discovered it, they settled it. It's called Easter Island because some Dutch explorer, um, who I'm not going to dare try to pronounce his name, but in 17 17- 122 on Easter Sunday, April, Easter Sunday, April 4th, he found the island and thus why it's called Easter Island. But we all are aware of this, even though there are countless islands in the South Pacific, we all are aware of Easter Island if we are because of the unique, strange, uh, in compared to all the world, statues that just are littered all throughout over almost, I should say, almost a thousand on this tiny island of these giant statues, some of which are are 30 feet high, some of which are so big when the inhabitants of of the island carved them, they couldn't move them. They made them too large to actually put in place. And even the ones that are put in place, scientists don't quite understand how they built them and and were able to um, lift them up and place them where they are, weighing tons upon tons. And the Rapa Nui people who lived on this island, they worked incredibly hard years just to make one of these almost thousand statues. And so the point is like, why go to all that effort? Because they're not just statues or decorations, right? To the Rapa Nui people, they were gods. These are idols. They believe them to be ancient ancestors placed as sentinels of protection for their community. See, I bring up Easter Island to make this point as we begin. Wherever you go, whether it be the largest city in the world or the last island that humans have inhabited, wherever you go, wherever humans make their home, you will always find idolatry. And this is true because biblically an idol is anything that takes the place of God in our life. Whether it's a a 30-foot statue carved out of volcanic rock or whether it is a, a money or a relationship, idolatry is at the heart of everything that's wrong with humanity. And it's also at the heart of the struggles of the church in Corinth. And we've been four months, and for, and for months to come, we'll be going line through line through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And Paul is addressing serious struggles this church has and serious questions they carry. And Paul gives a lot of intense warnings all through this letter. And, and most likely, the most intense warning he is going to give is in this particular passage about the issue of idolatry. So let's hear what Paul has to say 
to the church in Corinth what God has to say to us. We're going to take this in three points, and the first thing that we need to see is awareness of the dangers of idolatry. Paul's going to hold up the reality of the danger and and wants this church to be aware of that danger of idolatry. He says in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, for our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that uh, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. In order to show the danger of idolatry, Paul holds up this ancient, this extreme, and this alarming example of the ancient people of Israel and the Exodus story. It's a story that's foundational to Scripture. It's a story that makes up four out of the first five books of the Bible. And it's a story of a people who were formed by God, who encountered the saving power of God, and yet many of them gave their hearts away into idolatry and as a result lost what God wanted most for them. And Paul makes some connections, because Paul's brilliant. Paul makes some fascinating connections between the ancient Israel people of the Exodus and this church in the early church in Corinth. He says in verse 1, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud. Now, it's interesting that he's going to say our fathers because the majority of people, scholars will tell us, in this church in Corinth, they weren't Jews by ethnicity, they were Greeks. But Paul is still saying, hey, your heritage, your spiritual heritage is this story. In ancient Israel, like ancient Corinth, they experienced some of the the spiritual experiences you experienced. He's going to say they experienced baptism. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. A journey through water they took as God led them out of slavery in Egypt and miraculously parted the Red Sea. They passed through those waters out of what once enslaved them into freedom That's their story. And then what sought to enslave them, the forces of Egypt, when they came after them, God wiped away those enemies and those powers that sought to put them under captivity. And Paul's saying, hey, that was their baptism, just like you have your baptism. You entered into the waters of baptism, and it it proclaimed that you were set free. You took through the waters, and you were once slaves, but you passed through those waters into freedom in Christ. Those waters symbolized what Jesus had done for you. Like Moses was their deliverer, Jesus is your ultimate deliverer that Moses just pointed to. And, And the sin and the slavery and the death that once held you captive by the power of God, those powers have been washed and wiped away. That's what baptism signifies. Their story is a picture of what you've experienced in Christ Jesus. And he says, hey, and Israel was not just baptized into the sea, but they were also in a real way, he says, baptized into the cloud. They went through water, but they also were encompassed at times and led and and followed under a cloud that was the very picture of God's presence before, over, and with them. And again, church in Corinth, that's what you're experiencing. We're going to get to that in the coming chapters. The Spirit is at work in mighty ways. You're experiencing the power of the presence of God. Paul goes on to write in verse 3, And all ate of the same spiritual food and drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, capital R, if you look in your Bibles, that, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Those called to follow God long before us who experienced the powerful deliverance and experienced the real baptism and the real equivalent of a spirit-led life, 
they also had, this is fascinating, the equivalent of communion, the Lord's table. They had miraculous food and drink that the Lord provided for them. When they were hungry, God provided manna, bread from heaven for their provision. And they drank of living water from God in a real way, living water, miraculous water that was given to them from the rock, which is weird, right? You read that and you're like, did I miss part of that story? Maybe when I was a kid in Sunday school or when I do my chronological reading plan, was there like a giant mega boulder that rolled around with the people, the rock that went with them and it like seeped out water? Like how did that work? Seems strange. But what Paul is saying here is, is in the context, in the Old Testament, God is often referred to as the rock, as a title, as a name. And Paul is saying, hey, the rock that accompanied the people in Israel, their protection, their refuge, their firm foundation, that was the Son of God himself. So Paul's drawing parallels here that are fascinating. Israel, just like the Corinthians, had a deliverance experience with God. Israel, just like the Corinthians, had the power of God in their midst. Israel, just like the Corinthians, even had an equivalent of baptism and communion. Paul's saying, hey, they were just like you, church in Corinth. And we can look at all these examples and say, hey, in a real way, they're just like us, Frontline and Edmund. But here Paul sets an alarm off that should spring us to wake. Verse 5, he goes on to say, nevertheless, so we need to slow down. Hey, that all sounded great. Paul's going to say, yeah, but nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Israel had privileges from God, encounters with God that the church in Corinth had. They had salvation and the spirit and the sacraments in a real way. And yet... Though all of this was true for them, they, most of them lived a life that was not pleasing to God. When Paul says, nevertheless, most of, with most of them, God was not pleased, that's, a, that's an understatement to the extent that out of the multitude of the Exodus people that were set free from slavery in Egypt, how many actually made it to where God was trying to lead them to the promised land? How many adults got there? Two. What happened to the rest? Why were they, as Paul writes, overthrown in the wilderness? Out of the multitude who left Egypt, only a few made it to the place that God had for them. Why? And the answer that we see when we read the Old Testament and that Paul drives home here, the answer is the danger of idolatry. Idolatry was what entangled them. Idolatry is what took them off course and led them to ruin. And Paul wants the church to grasp this truth that it is, listen to this, it's possible to have spiritual experiences. It's possible to have encounters, proximity to what God is doing, but in a real way live a life that's not pleasing to God because it's a life that's entangled with the dangers of idolatry. Pastor Derek Prince, he explains what I'm getting at here, what Paul is, is doing here for the good of this church. He writes this, if we look in the mirror and see that our face is dirty, we should go and wash it. If we see that our clothes are in disorder or our hair is in disorder, we should go and make the necessary adjustments. He says, so it is when we look in the mirror of God's word 
It shows us the things that are unclean and the things that are out of order in our lives. But it is only helpful to us. It only helps us if after we see these things, we make the necessary adjustments and bring our lives into line with God's requirements. See, what Paul is doing in love to this church is saying, I see some things that are dangerous, that are off, that are messes in your life as it relates to idolatry. So I'm holding up the mirror of Scripture for you to see yourself in in the failings of the idolatry that your ancestors found themselves wrapped up in. So Paul's just getting started drawing parallels to help this church in Corinth see themselves and the dangers they're in rightly. The second thing that we need to see is examples of the destruction of idolatry. Verse 6, Paul writes, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. See, Paul's saying, look, you all didn't just have ancient people of Israel in the Exodus and church in, the, in Corinth in the early church. You didn't just share, and here's ultimately what Paul's driving at. You didn't just share blessings of, of being delivered by God, having the Spirit of God in your presence, even sacraments. Ultimately, what you share is far more dangerous. What you share is idolatrous hearts. That even though God has done so much for you, you're spurring his affections. You're double-minded. You have double affections. What we're going to get to is you're actually unfaithful to a faithful God. Because you're wrapped up in idolatry. And you're committing similar idolatry just like these ancient people did. And Paul gives examples The first example he gives is known as the fall of Israel. It's in Exodus 32. It's the story of a golden calf. He refers to it in verse 7 when he says, Don't be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that word play is just chocked full of darkness and hedonism and brokenness. The history Paul is recounting is this. It's heartbreaking because it's a moment, at the very moment, the, the deliverer of these people, Moses, is up on a mountain called Sinai, and he is convening, he is listening, he's communing, he's taking direction from God as God is giving him good laws to go share with his people so that they can know how he has called them to live for their own good and their own flourishing. God is engaging and pursuing and working on their behalf. And while their leader is away, hearing from God as an advocate on their behalf, while that's happening, in the meantime, all these people are at the base of that very mountain. What are they doing? Are they praying? Are they waiting? Are they celebrating what God has done in their life? No. On the base of that mountain, they are collecting gold, all the gold they can find, and they are melting it down so they can build a cow to worship. They're wrapped up in the dangers of idolatry. 
And it's like, why would, why on earth would you do that is the obvious question. But, but we can relate in a way, if we're honest, like they wanted a God they could see and manage. They wanted a God that they could meet with on their terms, not his terms. They wanted a God who affirmed their desires of hedonism and sexual sin and consumption. And they were just doing what they had grown up seeing. They had seen idol worship all throughout Egypt. And, and as it has been said before, it's easier to get these people out of Egypt than get Egypt out of these people. They desired a God that followed them. They didn't want to follow God. And so they worshiped a fake dead idol instead of the real living God who had flex and displayed his wonders for them for the world to see. Paul gives another example in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 people fell in a single day. Paul's referring to a moment that that, uh, golden calf story happened very early on in the journey of the people in the wilderness out of the Exodus. This story is near the end of their journey, many, many years later, and in their wandering, the men of Israel specifically begin to intermarry with neighboring people, the Moabites, even though God had explicitly told them not not to do that. And as they did, their worship shifts away from the one true God. And as they intermarry with the Moabite women, they begin to worship Baal, who is the Moabite's idol, false god. And see, their devotion to God, for many of these men, they sell it out for the price of sexual sin. And that sexual brokenness leads to idolatry of a false god who, again, will affirm their actions and their lifestyle. And as a result, a plague breaks out because of the judgment of God on the people of Israel, and only repentance brings an end. And God in love is saying, hey, look, your idolatry, the way you're going, is a dead end, so I'm going to take action in the form of judgment so you can see where you're running. Then Paul gives a final third example in verses 9 and 10, and he says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Ultimately, this is a story in Numbers 21 that boils down to this, that the posture of the, uh, of the parts of the people of God who had been led into deliverance they just came to a place where collectively they all said, hey, you're not enough. Your provision, your protection, hey, it's not cutting it, God. Your providence, you're not enough for us. These people ran out of patience with God. You're not feeding us enough. You're not giving us enough to drink. We don't like this food. They were like ingrate toddlers who are always constantly complaining And their hearts towards God began to be hearts not of worship and honor, but grumbling and cynicism. And so the God who delivered them, led them, provided for them, all of a sudden wasn't nearly enough for them. And as a result, there's an affliction of snakes that infest the camp. It's like my nightmare. Goodness gracious. 
See, they failed to trust God. They found themselves in the midst of this trial. But this is the beauty. If you go read Numbers 21, you'll see that God in his grace, just as the people are saying, hey, you're not enough. We reject you. We've walked away from you. God in his grace once again just says, hey, trust me, and I'll provide for you a way of escape from this trial. And he does. See, Paul's point here is that your situation, church in Corinth, is just like all of those situations years ago. They fell into dangerous idolatry when it came to their comfort, their sexuality, their consumption. That's right where you are, and you don't even see it. And that's the danger of idolatry is that we're often not aware or waving the red flag and saying, hey, I'm struggling with idolatry. We don't ever see it as our problem. I was thinking of a, a story that uh, I've, I've heard for years this week from one of my heroes, Pastor Tim Keller. And I don't recall if this was in a book that I read or if it, I just heard him share it through a sermon. But the, but the story is this. Um, before everybody knew who he was and he planted his, his awesome church, Redeemer, in Manhattan, New York, he was, Pastor Keller, was a pastor of a rural church in Pennsylvania, a smaller church. And there was a, a, a moment in the life of his pastoring at that church where he got a phone call from some parents because they were concerned about just a discouragement in the life of their, it was like 12, 13, 14-year-old daughter. And like, man, I'm so thankful our church has many 12, 13, 14-year-old girls and boys. That is like oh, the hardest season of life. And we love you and are praying for you. This girl was having a hard time in her adolescence, and so her parents, being good parents, are like, hey, why don't you go talk to Pastor Tim? And so they set up a meeting, and, and so Tim Keller is, can you imagine, like you're just a 12-year-old girl, you have the audience of Tim Keller, like one of the greatest gospel minds of our generation, and he is just laying down the, go- he's just, just throwing gospel bombs at her, as you imagine, if you're familiar with him, he's, he's like, hey, let's pretend her name is Sally. Sally, you are justified. That means that like God has forgiven you, freed you from any guilt that you have. Jesus paid the price for your sins. When the Heavenly Father looks at you, you are free and innocent because of Christ Jesus. You are sanctified. He set you apart as holy. You are glorified. Like, hey, you don't even have to be scared of death. Death isn't the end for you. It's just the beginning of eternity with God forever. Hey, you're adopted, Sally. All that's good enough, but God doesn't stop there. Like, he actually loves you so much that that he brings you in as a co-heir with Christ. You're one of his daughters. You're seated at the family of God. And he thinks that he's just profoundly impacting her heart as he's sharing all these truths of who Jesus is and what that means for her. And so he just throws out all this gospel truth, and he takes a beat to hear from her. And she takes a breath and looks at him and says, What good does all that do if boys don't like me? Which is heartbreaking, right? But then you're also just like, hey, sweetheart, you know, you're just 12, you're 13. Like, that's, life is more than that. But no, we're just like our, our, you know, real but fictionally named Sally. Because each and every one of us have that. Like, hey, this is all who Jesus is and this is all that he's done for us. But what good is that if I don't have a family life? that's perfect right now, or a job that I get fulfillment from, or if I don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or if I'm single, or if I don't have the freedom because I'm stuck in a marriage that's difficult right now. And for every single one of us in some way, shape, or form, there is a danger of idolatry. And this is why Paul is bringing all these old stories before this church 
and why it's recorded in Scripture for us today. Paul's not concerned with getting lost in the details. He wants us to see the forest from the trees. He's giving us a view of reality so that we can clearly see the danger that idolatry is. It's not an ancient problem. It's not an Eastern problem. It's a human problem. And whenever we give a created thing, even if it's a good thing, a place in our life where we put our hope, our identity, our peace, our salvation, and it all rests upon that thing. To put it this way, if that thing, regardless of what it is, if it's not the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, if that thing is our foundation, we're building a life built on idolatry. Idolatry isn't so much what we bow our knee to, but it's what we build our life on. It's the same thing. When food or sex are where we find our ultimate comfort, that's the danger of idolatry. When money and success provide our ultimate meaning, we're in the danger of idolatry. When even the good thing of a strong family and kids in a good place go beyond something that we're thankful for, that actually become the foundation of our identity, we're in the grips of idolatry. And this is the truth. Like, we crush what we put the weight of our worship on if it's not Jesus. As it's been said before, like, humans are worshipers. It's not a choice as to whether we worship. Everybody worships. The only question is what we worship. And anything that we worship besides the one true God, when we put the weight of our meaning and our purpose and our hope for salvation on that thing, if it's a good thing, we ruin it. And regardless of what it is, we crush it. N.T. Wright, he puts it this way in his book, Surprised by Hope. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. He goes on to say, those who worship money, listen to this, those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat others as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combined in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned, and of those whose lives they touch. So with the seriousness of the, the danger of idolatry and the example of the destruction of idolatry, that brings us to the final thing that Paul wants us to see, and we'll, we'll frame it as this. Thirdly, the escape from the danger of idolatry. Verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may, that you may be able to endure it. See, this is what's so helpful. Paul is just like, just like stopping the record of our mind here that might be saying, but you don't know, but you don't understand, you know, and the record is scratching and Paul's saying, there's no exceptionalism. If anyone in Corinth 2,000 years ago or anyone this morning is thinking like, hey, first, this is too much for me, or hey, idolatry isn't a danger for me, Paul is just stopping right here and saying, it is a real danger, but there is real escape. It is a real danger. Don't think that this isn't an issue for you. Paul's saying the danger is thinking that it isn't an issue for you. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul's saying don't be lulled into a false sense of security in the midst of the danger of idolatry. But he doesn't stop there. In a beautiful way, he goes on to give this awesome assurance. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. The danger of idolatry is an old danger, Paul is saying. It's nothing new. It's nothing novel. It's nothing unseen by God's people. And God is faithful. It's the same old threats, false God, dead ends to worship. And God is always at work to deliver you from the entanglements and the dangers and the destruction of idolatry. We ought not be afraid or discouraged or intimidated or certainly not resigned to defeat. Why? Because God is faithful, Paul says. And he, he, not in our own strength, but he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it commentator that I was reading this week said, hey, those four words, the way of escape is the key phrase there, what we should be drawn towards. What's Paul holding out for us to understand? Out of my four children, Deacon, my youngest, his love language is, is um, wrestling, it's fighting. And when I come home from work, Often the other kids are there um, to, to give me a hug, and Deacon doesn't want a hug. The first thing that comes out of his mouth when I come home, and often in the morning, is, Dad, will you fight with me? And he just wants to mix it up. And so we, we fight, and we wrestle, and it's, it's, it's his love language, right? And this is my approach to fathering. I don't take it easy on him at the age of four. I'm never going to take it easy on any of my boys. Someday they're going to beat me in a wrestling match, and they will have really beat me, Right? They're going to earn the W. And so even when I'm wrestling with my four-year-old, man, I'm hitting him with everything I have. Arm lock, leg lock, appropriate choke for a four-year-old. And what I love about Deacon is whether he's wrestling me or his sisters or his brothers, like he never gives up. When he gets caught in something, he always asks the same thing. He goes, Daddy, how I get out of this one? right? He's awesome. I had to bribe him to tell this story. I said, hey, can I use you as an illustration? He said, no. And I said, I'll give you a piece of it. And then he said, yes, before I could finish the sentence. And so this cost me a piece of candy to share that. It was worth it. Me sacrificing my dignity to bribe my child. But what I love about Deacon's heart to say, daddy, how do I get out of this one? is that reflects our heart as we get wrapped up in idolatry, when we're under the danger of the grasp of idolatry and we feel like we might be stuck. We can say, hey, Father who loves me, how do I find a way of escape? 
And Paul says, God is faithful to show us that way of escape. And so that begs the question, like, how do we get out? How do we find that way of escape from idolatry? And this is the truth. Like, we cannot win the war of worship on our own. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to free ourselves from all the idols that seek to lay claim on our heart. But here's the good news. We're not alone. We're not hopeless. It's not up to us. Paul says it in three sweet words. The good news is God is faithful. Jesus came to dethrone idolatry. The work of Christ is that all of us have an idol on our heart and Jesus enters our life and he drop kicks that off of our hearts and rightly takes the seat on our heart as the true rightful king of our heart. He is our help. He is our salvation. And so to, to escape from idolatry is to recognize, hey, we worship our way into that sin. We worship our way into that entrapment and entanglement. We worship our way into idolatry by definition and the way of escape. The only way of escape is to worship our way out. And that means seeing that Jesus is truly better. So maybe just maybe there's someone here today that is entangled with the struggle of idolatry when it comes to pornography. And deep down, you actually are struggling with pornography, not just in and of itself because of sexual sin. It goes deeper than that. It's the place you go for escape and peace. You feel control. It's all tangled up. You've maybe been struggling for decades with that. And you can read the right book or put the right software on your device. And those are good things, but they don't have the power to dethrone that idol. The only person that has the power to, out, to, to dethrone that, that idol is Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, you begin to see that, no, 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 that's not comfort. That's not peace. Jesus is the only place to go where really all, all pleasure is found, all joy is found, good life and flourishing is found. Jesus is our escape from idolatry. And this is the beauty. When we see him rightly, when we see him lifted up, when we receive him, when we see him receiving the judgment that we deserved on our behalf, that's our escape. When we truly understand who he is, and then that helps our affections respond rightly and our lives respond to respond lightly. Like he was the only person in history that actually had no means of escape as it relates to idolatry because he freely chose to pay the price of being unfaithful to God. He never worshiped an idol. He was perfect. He was sinless. He obeyed the heavenly father always. And yet he chose to pay the price for our idolatry. He was caught by death so we could be freed from death and have eternal life. Paul says this in in verse 14 then. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. (laughs) He's saying, hey, run from those idols that lead to death and run to Jesus, the only one worthy of our worship. And in light of this call, Paul reminds the church, he reminds us of what we believe. And as a reminder, he holds up actually the Lord's table communion. Look at what he says in verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
What Paul's saying is, hey, when we as the people of God come to the Lord's table together and we take bread and we take wine, we are certainly remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. We're remembering the cross. Jesus told us to do that in Luke 22, do this in remembrance of me. But the sum of Scripture reminds us that the Lord's table isn't less than remembrance, but it is more than just a mere act of remembrance. And Paul tells us here, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation of the body of Christ? Paul that word when he says participation, that word that he uses means fellowship, communion, a oneness, deep bonds that are sacred. He's saying the bread, yes, in and of itself is just bread. The wine or juice in and of itself is just juice. But what it means for the reality of who we are is deeply sacred and symbolic because it's saying, hey, we are the very body of Christ. We are one with him and we are one as a church, one bride together given to him. As we eat and drink and remember his sacrifice, we proclaim, hey, we are one with Jesus. Christ, you are in us and we are in you and we are together under your authority and you sustain us. You are our source of life. You are the sweetness of life. And we come to a family meal together as the bride of Christ. We belong to you, Jesus. And so in light of that, Paul asks, and this is the weight of the passage to me and the stakes at hand. 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. No. Paul's saying, hey, when you after work church in Corinth, you stop and you go to the temple of Apollo or Aphrodite and you, you go and there's statues of them. Are those statues anything? No, they're dead stone. There's no power in them. 20, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I want you, I do not want you to be participants with demons. 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So Paul's saying, while it's true that those idols have no power in and of themselves, there is real spiritual powers of darkness at work behind them to entice people to not worship the one true God, but give their life away to, to dead things with no power that the powers of darkness are more than happy to rob the one true God of worship that only he deserves and waste it on dead things with no power, but their real powers of darkness are at work behind that. The idol worship of every kind is ultimately and always worship directed towards powers of darkness who delight in trying to disrupt and prevent the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying that when it comes down to it, there's only two ways to direct our worship. There's one way of light where you worship our triune God, Heavenly Father, the Son, the Spirit. And any worship, anything that we give our hearts to besides that is ultimately darkness, whether it's explicit or implicit, whether we realize it or not. So Paul asks in light of that, 
Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? See, he's saying the issue at hand is one of fidelity. It's one of, of, of whether we're going to live faithfully or if we're going to live a double life. See, the people in Corinth weren't saying again like, hey, I'm not going to follow God. I'm going to worship these idols. They wanted it both ways. I'm going to follow God, but I want on the side a little idol worship in my life for the fun of it. I want on the side a little idol worship in my life so that I don't seem weird to my friends in the city of Corinth. And Paul's just framing that and calling it what it is when he asks, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Because what he's bringing to mind in this moment is the constant heartbreaking illustration of when people all throughout the Old Testament reject God. He's saying, hey, this is not just idolatry, it's adultery. You're breaking covenant as the bride of Christ. You're being unfaithful. The issue at hand is faithfulness versus infidelity. And this text shines a light that's bright and it's uncomfortable. And at times, if you're like me, I want to shield my eyes from it because we see things in brightness and they're exposed. And it's saying, hey, you can live a life that in many ways seems spiritual and right and has proximity to what God's doing. And yet, in a real way, we can have a heart that's split between worshiping Jesus and worshiping something else. And Paul's saying, hey, that's unfaithful. You're being unfaithful to a God who is always faithful to you. And God wants all idols out of the picture. He loves you so much that he will not share you with anyone. So if you're not a Christian this morning, the message is there's only one person who can carry the weight of your worship. And there's only one person who's worthy of your worship. And all of us worship. It's just a matter of what we worship. And the only thing worthy of your worship is your creator who loves you more than anything. Direct your worship, maybe for the first time, rightly today. Worship Jesus. Receive his grace. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Recognize his lordship in your life. That is the only place that a good life can be found. Not an easy life, but a life worth living. A life built on a firm foundation. Everything else will crumble and let you down. And if you're a Christian today, the reality is is to heed Paul's warning and say, hey, be careful if you think you stand, if you think this isn't an issue for you. Before God, we need to ask the Spirit to help us see areas that we are in danger of being entangled in idolatry. Areas that we say, hey, Jesus, we love you, but we also need this thing to really have the good life and a life of flourishing. And so we can take some time to pray before we rush to the table. And then when we're ready to come to the table, we get to declare Jesus. When we eat this bread, we're saying, you are the source of life. Your body was broken so that I have life. You're my king. You're enough. Full stop. You plus nothing else. When we drink this wine, we're making a declaration and saying, you're the richness of my life. Free life, full life. Life as it was meant to be lived is found in you because your blood has washed away my sin. So when you're ready, however you're going to respond, you can respond in faith and come. Let's stand and pray together.